0: What I want to do uh, to to get us into our space here for Galatians chapter four, I want to do. I I, I feel like uh, we can't actually see Galatians four in context unless we give just a brief snip uh, of the the a review of the concept of what we dealt with last week <coughs> in chapter three. Now remember, the chapters aren't in the original. Right? There's no chapters and verses in the original text. This is just a letter that's written. When you write a letter, typically you don't say, you know, Article 15, Section 4, when you're writing a letter to someone. you know These aren't, weren't written to be official uh, church documents for, uh, for Scripture. These were written as letters from an apostle to a, a number of churches. And so we, we look at it, uh, we, we kind of parse it apart. But it's really a flow of consciousness here um, from from Paul. And it's intentional what he's doing. um, And yet those specific uh, places in the scripture where we demarcate chapter 3, chapter 4, that's not, you got to kind of get rid of that when you see the the letter. And so we need to pick up a little bit on what the concept was that Paul was working on in chapter 3 in order to fully understand where he's flown with chapter 4. And as you recall, what's going on again in this book is that there have been false teachers who have taught people who have come to Christ from a place of grace and understanding they are loved by God, and they have subtly begun to think that they have to perform for God, that they have to, in their own effort, self-improve. And even though we enter into the kingdom of God, and they entered into the kingdom of God by the grace of God, they now feel like it's their job to self-improve to become better. Instead of continuing in dependence on God, not independence, continuing to be dependent on God. Um, so uh, there was a uh, a slide that I used here um, that I want to start with, and this was uh, how we kind of ended last week, and it's this uh, we called it the the cycle of self reliance. Okay, and what we talked about here was that, and this is what we said. All religion is outside of a relationship with God is uh, we self-indulge, which is that we sin, we go our own way, and then we end up with heaviness of heart, guilt, and shame which is we self-loathe, we don't like ourselves, and then we either self-medicate, we do things to make ourselves feel better, um, and we get caught in an addiction cycle of sin or of materialism or of workaholism or whatever ism you want to call it, you know? And then at some point, we may stop and take inventory and self-evaluate and say, this isn't working, life isn't getting better, and then right there is where all religion meets us and says, here's a path to improving your life. Here's some disciplines that will help you do better. Here's some self-help principles. Here's how you can be a better person. And as we try to do that and self-improve, we might see minor adjustments in our behavior on the outside for a period of time. And when that happens, then we grow in our sense of self-righteousness. And that, hey, we're doing pretty good and I feel okay. And I feel like compared to everyone else around me, I'm doing all right. Or compared to what I was before, I'm doing okay. And it makes us feel good about ourselves based on what we're doing. But the problem is, is when our confidence is in what we're doing good, it doesn't last. Because we can't sustain that. We can't be perfect. And we fail. And when we do, then of course we have the problem of we fail. And then it starts the whole cycle again. Now this is the cycle that uh, the elemental principles Of religion, and this is what Paul talked about. That remember, what we talked about is he said there was a guardian, a tutor, a babysitter in your life, a nanny, and that nanny, that babysitter, that guardian, that tutor, that teacher was just the law. And that law was to keep you in place. When we were running away from our father, when we weren't in good standing with our dad, and we w- the relationship wasn't great, and we didn't have this good, healthy family relationship, there was one who was taking care of us to make sure that we didn't fall too far, and that was the law. The law was put in place to make sure that our rebellion didn't take us so far away from him, that there wasn't anything to sustain us. So God put in place the law, which revealed his basic principles, but it showed our inability to live according to the house rules of God. And we struggled against it, but it provided some level of protection. But then he said, in the person of Jesus Christ, there's this moment. And what we said is it's right here. And when we self-evaluate that instead of trying to self-improve, there is, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And there's a, there is a way out of the cycle, and the way out of the cycle is the righteousness that comes from God, not from us. And that is acquired not by taking inventory and figuring out how to self-improve. That's by confessing our own inability and receiving the grace of God. That's the great rescue plan. That's where the righteousness that comes from God instead of the righteousness that comes from man. And that's what chapter 3 was all about. Okay? Now, at the end of chapter 3, and this is where I, I want us to go back now to the end of chapter 3, and uh, I, I want us to look at verse 25, starting in verse chapter 3, and this will help us understand verse twenty-four or um, chapter, tw- chapter 4. So starting in verse 25, it says, but now that faith has come. Okay, so that's that thing that's saying, we're not under the guardianship of the law. We're not just trying to obey the law. Instead, we're trusting God. We've realized that we can trust God's grace for us. And he says, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. All those things that hedged us in, that were supposed to keep us safe, the law that was restrictive. When my heart wanted to go against God, there was all the laws to keep me in place. He said, but now that we can trust God and know that we're on the same team and on the same page with God, we don't have to have that guardian around us, that law. For in Christ Jesus, you all are sons of God through faith. Now, I want to stop there for just a second. We're going to finish this, but I want to stop there for just a second, and the reason is because it says that you all are sons of God. How many of you are sons, not just of God, but how many of you are, like, physically, in the physical, are sons? I think everybody got it right, except one little girl over here. Um, she doesn't know. We are all, some are daughters. How many are daughters? Yeah, yeah. In Christ, how many are sons? Everybody's hand comes up. In Christ, everyone's son. There's a reason why. There's a reason why. There are parts, places in the scriptures where we're called children of God, where we're called the sons and daughters, but all of us are sons, and that is imperative. That language is gender-specific in the original text, and there's a reason, and it doesn't have to do with chauvinism. And we know that because in two verses later, it says there's not male and female anymore. But the reason it says son is because, in the context of the day, all of history, there was a different role that the son played in the family than the daughter played in the family. They played different roles in that society. And what the scripture is trying to tell us is that all of us receive what it is that a son receives in the family in that day inheritance. It was a patriarchal society. And the son becomes a father, and the father provides. And therefore, the father gives to his son inheritance so that he can provide for his family. And what it's saying is that everything that you need will be given to you. And it doesn't matter if you're a Jew, a Greek, a slave, a free, male, female, no matter what, you are now a son. You are brought into that place where the firstborn son receiving this full inheritance to carry on the work. You now, each individually, are a part of that inheritance. Awesome, awesome stuff. So this is what it says. You are sons of God, and how? Through faith. And what it's saying here is, is again, it's going. he's reminding us that you are not sons because you earned faith. Sonship. We cannot earn God's favor. We cannot earn God's inheritance. If we ever think that God gives us the inheritance of heaven because of what we've done, then we've missed the core of the gospel. That's why that song we just sang. Not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. Not because of who I am, but because of what you've done. Right? And that's the, the core of the gospel is that our inheritance, the favor of God on our life comes to us entirely because of the work of Christ and because of the person of Christ. And there are sowing and reaping principles in our life to the extent that we trust God and to the extent that we believe that and receive that it will have bearing on our lives and how our lives go. But the favor of God over us, the gift of God to us, is not something that can be earned. It's by grace only, and it can only be received by faith. And so what he's saying here, and well, let's continue on. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as, and, and by the way, just one more thing there. Sons is Plural. And this is talking about our individual relationship with Christ. Notice that we are not each brides of Christ. You notice that? You personally are not a bride of Christ. We, corporately, are the bride of Christ. The beauty that we offer to God is in our collective corporate relationship how we interface with one another because of the gospel is the beauty to God. But in order for us to be able to interface appropriately and live out the beauty of the bride, we individually have to have identity in our relationship with God. So in our individual relationship with God, we are each sons of God. We have massive respect and inheritance given to us by God. And together as we walk in the confidence of that, we begin to embody the beauty of what that looks like in the bride altogether. Corporate identity, individual identity, okay? And the genders are important in those things, okay? So when the church is referred to, the church is referred to as a bride. You know, it's one of the pictures of, a, of it. But a, as a unique, individual, corporate-gathered people, it's a bride specifically, individually, sons. Okay, Uh, verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now remember, I I think it's important to hear the link here with baptism. What is the picture of baptism? Baptism is one of the two primary ordinances in the church, the two big ordinances or or sacraments, depending on kind of your faith background, uh, your traditional uh, Christian background. The two primary ordinances, communion and baptism, both of them are symbols of a covenant relationship with God. The new covenant with God. The covenant of the body broken and the bloodshed, our entrance into the body. And then secondarily, we are buried with God in baptism. The picture of him going into the grave and him resurrecting. And what happens is is when we engage in those basic practices of the church, what we're saying is, is we're entering into the relationship with God. We're entering into the family of God. And I am letting go of who I was beforehand. I'm consuming Christ and I'm entering in as part of the body of Christ, and I'm dying to myself. And when I resurrect, I am no longer my own. Now I am God's. That doesn't mean we are each God's, it means we belong to God. We are part of His family, and we are part of His body. And therefore, our identity now shifts. Hand in your social security number hand in your gender, hand in your race, hand in all of that because our identity now, our primary identity is not in the thing that makes us unique from other people. It's the thing that makes us in common with all who have faith and trust in Jesus. We are seen through the eyes of the Father as redeemed children of God, as sons of God. And together we are the bride of Christ. Okay, so... um. And that's why he goes into identity here in verse twenty-eight. It says, "There is neither Jew nor Greek; there is neither slave nor free; there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus." I think it's really important to understand in this text here. Um, look, there is neither there is neither Jew nor Greek; there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female. Notice how that's different? Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, no male and female. That's intentional. That's very intentional. Remember what the image of God is in in Genesis chapter 1? In his image, he created them, male and female, he made them. And what it's saying is, is that what, what, what's happening in this verse, and it's, this is a super, super, super important verse in our society right now. Because we are so hyper-concerned about, about self-identification in our society, about identifying myself about how we are identified. And we're very sensitive to allowing each person to be identified the way that they want to be identified. And so, you know, the whole topic around gender right now is a really, really big topic in our culture. And right now, in Christian circles, when there's conversations about gender, when there's conversations about marriage, when there's conversations about all of those things, this is a verse that people look at and say, well, there isn't male and female. Right? And, but it's not the differentiation. It's not that there isn't male or female. It's saying there isn't even male and female. So the whole idea of how we reveal the glory of God, what it's saying is, is that the races, the genders, the generations all of the different backgrounds that we have, what's happening right now is it's saying we are laying down, we are fully laying down all identifiers in order to be identified by what? By what? Say it! Christ! For as many of you as were baptized into Christ. So, What we cannot do is take a passage like this and say, hey, when it comes to whether or not we're male or female or whether we have racial diversity or whether we're slave or free or any of that stuff, we should look at this verse. As soon as this whole world gets baptized and gives their lives entirely to Jesus and has no identity except Jesus, then we can take this verse and put it in context with the rest of our world. Until then, it doesn't apply. And for us, what we recognize is is even when I give my life to Christ, there are still different colors of skin. And there are still different pictures of when you look at one person and another person. Our bodies are shaped different. There's different physiological aspects to how we're made. And those things don't change just because we enter into a relationship with God. But what it is saying is this. It used to be that the guy who was the son, gets the inheritance. And there was an inherent value in the family placed on that position that you are a son. And what he's saying is, done with that. There is no value of the guy, of the son, over the daughter. There is no value of the Jew over the Greek. There is no value over the... uh, land-owning person versus the servant who's working for him. There is no value difference anymore in Christ. When you're looked at through the eyes of God, I don't care what your job is or your background or your economics or where you came from or what your gender is or what your race is. In the eyes of God, if you've given your life to the Lord, if you've trusted Jesus, when he looks at you, you might as well be the king on the highest throne because he loves you the same as he loves every other son of god which is any person who trusts jesus that is awesome that is your identity that's who we are if we have faith and if we trust god so that is the end of chapter three okay all of that is the context by which paul draws us into this picture in chapter four now i wanted to take all of that time to set up the end of chapter three Cause that transition moves us into what it is that Paul sets up in chapter four. And we're not going to get into all the details of chapter four cause it's big and we, and we don't have time, you know, uh, obviously we're almost we're out of time already, but, uh, but what happens is, is that Paul sets up this picture at the end of chapter four and you, the, the poor boys, man, we gave them a rough passage to read at the beginning of the text or uh, at the beginning of the service, but they did a good job, I thought. And, um, thanks for clapping those who clapped. That was pretty cool. Um, And uh, what you see Paul doing here is Paul sets up a picture then of two sons. He mentions two sons from the Old Testament in chapter 4. And he doesn't mention them by name. He mentions one of the moms by name. That's it. And who are the two sons he's referring to? Anybody remember? Isaac and Ishmael. Who were the sons of who? Abraham and Sarah. Well, Abraham, (laughs) they're the sons of Abraham. One is the son of Sarah, one is the son of Hagar. And Hagar was uh, the servant of Sarah, right? There was a promise made by God to Abraham, and this is what he gets into, but this is what chapter four is about. But before we, there's one other thing that you gotta see in order to understand that. In the Old Testament, the picture of sonship, to understand the role of what it means to be a son, is We see it in the first few chapters of Genesis, don't we? There are two sons right at the beginning of Genesis. And right after the fall of man, the curse on mankind was, first of all, it was going to be really rough for Eve. Not only, childbirth was going to be rough. And any of you moms can say amen. Um, And any of us dads can't say a word. But that curse is much more than just the pain of childbirth. It's the pain of family life when rearing children. It's the whole process of the relationships of the family is wrought with struggle and difficulty and pain. Which is why there's that tension of what the, the text says is you'll desire the p- position of the man. You'll desire the man. Your desire will be for the man. And there's a, we're not getting into that today, what that actually means. But the desire for the man and the pain in the childbirth, and it's setting up this family dynamic becomes difficult. It becomes difficult. And for Adam, the curse is, and when you go to work, it's going to be hard. It's never going to be easy. It's never going to fit anymore. You know how many counseling sessions I've had that have to do with a person going to work and the tensions they're dealing with at work and then the struggles at home and the interconnectedness between those two things and the guy's trying to get respect and do what he needs to do and the woman's trying to figure out how the relationship works, you know? And it goes back and forth how those dynamics play. But what it's saying is there's the curse that affects the family and the workplace and how that whole thing goes and it's very difficult. And by the next generation, what we see is two brothers who are massively fulfilling that curse. And because what... Cain does, Cain and Abel, there's this thing where Cain, firstborn son, is going to prove himself not only to dad, but to God Almighty. And he's going to take his fruits, what he's done, his fruit. And he's going to take the best of his fruits, and he's going to bring them to God. And he say, I worked that ground hard with all the thorns and the thistles. I overcame the curse. Look at what I gave to you, God. And what does God say? That's not what I asked you for. I'm not impressed by your fruit. I'm not impressed by the fruit of your labor. As a matter of fact, just a generation ago, I gave you all that fruit for for free. You didn't have to work for it. I'm the maker of the fruit. I'm the one who delivers the fruit. I'm not impressed by your fruit. I didn't ask you for fruit. I'm the one who gives you fruit. You don't give me fruit. But what did his little brother give? Brokenness. An apology. Honesty. He said, look, I know we've broken the relationship and we need to remember that we've broken the relationship and things are messed up here because we've messed them up, not because you've messed them up. You haven't let us down. We've let you down. Here's the sacrificial lamb. Here's the picture of the purity that's shed because of our brokenness. And in that picture, God says, yes, that is the contrite heart. That's the honesty. And God receives that sacrifice and what happens? Cain gets angry because he worked by the sweat of his brow to overcome the thorns and it wasn't enough and his sacrifice got accepted and mine didn't and murder takes place. And there's enmity between the brothers and we see the curse working itself out. And then a couple generations later with Abraham, we see it with Isaac and Ishmael. And then with Isaac's sons, anybody remember who Isaac's sons are? Jacob and Esau, a little bit of problem between those brothers, right? There's theft, there's lying, there's dishonor of dad, there's intention all the time. And then there's Jacob's sons. Technicolor dream coat, thrown into a well, lies to dad saying he was tore up by a lion, but who wants to do that when you can make money off of him and sell them into slavery? It's amazing what happens when we lose perspective of the fact that we are loved and cherished sons of God. And when we are insecure about who we are in the eyes of our earthly father, it can cause a problem. When we are insecure about who we are in the eyes of God, it causes devastation across the church. And we start to live like slaves who are in a contract with God, who are still under that guardian mentality and we're competing against our brothers and sisters to earn the favor of God and we're always feeling slighted and we're always feeling disrespected and we're always feeling underloved. Instead, there's another opportunity and the other opportunity is to be people of faith who believe that because of the grace of God that we are loved and we are cherished and we stand in the inheritance of God and we don't need anything from our brothers and sisters. We stand in the confidence of our Father and our great joy is to bless our brothers and sisters and not come into those relationships with expectations, but to come into those relationships with the inheritance of God and the generosity to bless others. And this is the picture that Paul sets up, the picture of those who were born in the slave and those who were born of the promise of faith. And so the picture is Abraham with Isaac and with Ishmael. And it goes just like this, just like this. God says, Abraham, you're going to have a kid. And he was like, I've been waiting for a long, long time and it's not here, and Sarah feels horrible because she's like, I can't bring this child who you're supposed to have. And she feels bad about herself as a woman. And she's like, I'm barren, and I can't have a child, and so she feels fruitless. And Abraham feels fruitless. And so they have to try hard to accomplish what it is that God wants them to accomplish. And so we got to find a way. And it seems weird for you to have a relationship with my servant girl, but we can't find any other way to make it happen. So here's my servant girl and everything's twisted and weird in the relationships, but just just go with it. And they try to find a way to fulfill God's promise for him, to play God in order to self-improve. And out of that today... In our world, we have massive issues. Massive issues that exist today because of a child, a single child, born from a relationship that wasn't out of faith. It wasn't trusting God's promise, but was trying to make something happen in order to prove God, in order to prove ourselves. And the funny thing is, is God redeems it, and God blesses, and he finds a way, but it's not without its consequences. But then there's this other child. (laughs) When, When Sarah's way, way, way past anyone's expectations of when a person can have a child, and when Abraham's way past the age, and God finds a way to fulfill the promise. And all they had to do was have faith and trust God. And for each of us, there is still that deep temptation within us to define our relationship with God based on how productive and how fruitful we are. And to the extent that we are fruitful, we think that we are valuable. And to the extent that we think we're valuable, that defines who we are. But what this is asking us is to believe something very different. So I want to close with this slide. You can pull up the... uh, The um, next slide. Okay, so when you meet someone, hi, my name's Tim. Nice to meet you, Dave. One of the first questions, of course, we ask someone is, what do you do? How do you contribute? What it is you do with your life, right? This is our significance, what we contribute. And what we contribute then, we say, okay, this is how it works for pastors. I work, you know, obviously I connect with pastors all the time. The danger when you put a bunch of pastors together is they'll say, okay, what do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh, okay. You know what every pastor wants to ask, right? What do they want to ask? Yeah, how big is your church? In other words, how legit are you, right? How, so you're a pastor. Significance, what you do is you pastor. How good of a pastor are you? And how good of a pastor you are is defined by how many people are in your church right any industry any job any role in society has the same thing i'm just saying that cuz that's the thing i do but each each one of us has that thing what do you do and then how good are you at what you do and the better you are at what you do the more you figure out who you actually are so i am what i do and i am valuable to the extent that i do it well and that is the curse that was put on men particularly on men, that you will work the ground and it will be hard. And the reason it's going to be hard is because you're going to try to prove that you are a good, legit son of God. So you're going to keep working and keep working in order to gain respect. And that fills that cycle of how to self-improve. But the grace of God says this. It says something very different. It says, who you are, is not defined by what you do. Who you are is defined by what God says you are, what he's done for you. So right here in this moment, our core identity is found through what? He says there is the child who is born of the slave woman, the one who's the, the kid who's like, the more I try to do for, for my master, the more he'll approve of me. But then there's the other the one that's born of faith, that says, who am I? I am who my father says I am. My father says I am loved. My father says that I am special. My father says that I have an inheritance. And my leg- sense of legitimacy is not found through what I do. My sense of legitimacy is discovered by remembering who I am. And to the extent that I remember who I am is the extent to which I start to actually have true significance in the world. Because the fruit of the Spirit starts to work through my life. And I start to bear love and joy and peace and patience. Now here's the the thing. At the end of this picture, when we look at our lives, and this is what the Galatians had to ask, and this is what we have to ask right now. When I look at my life as a Christian, How do I discover how good of a Christian I actually am? How do I figure that out? How good of a Christian are you? Well, I want to argue that there are not levels of good Christian and bad Christian. So you can't be a better Christian or a worse Christian. You can either be in Christ or not. That's what you got. That's the options, they're the only options the Bible gives. And my whole job now in life is not to perform to be a better Christian. My whole job in life is to believe. To believe that He is good. To believe that I am loved. And to not live my life trying to prove something to myself or to anyone else or to God. But instead, to live my life enjoying the love that God has for me. Soaking that up Walking in the confidence of it. And the temptation is a good spirit, a good Christian loves more. A good Christian reads their Bible more. A good Christian does this. So I want to be a good Christian, so I want to do those things. And all those things are awesome, but if I do them because I want to be good, I'm doing them for the wrong reasons, and all they are are another form of law that are just beating me down and making life hard for me. There's a whole other way to view those things, which is that. When I know that I'm a child of God, man, it is awesome to be with my dad and to know his love. And he tells me that when I'm reading this, I get to hear his spirit, the spirit of God that lives in me, speaking to me through the word and telling me that I'm loved. And I need help with that all the time because I get distracted. So I want to read this so I can hear God say it again to me. And I want to go and love people, not because I want to be better. I mean, I'm made fine. It's because when I engage with the least of these, Jesus says, I'm doing it unto him. And I want to be with him in what he's doing so I can experience his love. You don't have to prove anything to God. I don't have to prove anything to God. But if I want life to go well, it becomes my whole goal in life to experience and to know his love for me. And that's the great journey. And it's not something that I can earn. It's something that I can receive by faith. So as we go into prayer, will we live out of a slave mentality that says I'm trying to prove from God and where in my life am I still trying to earn something or prove something? Where am I still trying to make it happen? And where am I living as a true child of Abraham, a true son of God, one who receives by faith? that I'm loved. Let's pray. I think um, for the prayer, uh, those of you who know it by heart can recite it with me. Um, What I want to do is I want to recite the lyrics of the first verse of Blessed Assurance. Blessed Assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation. Purchased of God born of His Spirit and washed in His blood. This is my story, and this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, and this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Amen.